0: My name is Roy Malloy and you are listening to The Dawn of Crime. This is a podcast that's designed to talk about and give biography to some of the more interesting and incredible things that have happened throughout our history, but in a criminal way. People and places and things that were affected by the law. Uh, And in this particular episode, I'm going to be talking about one of the more interesting cases that I've ever come across. And it was a piece that I wrote a while ago for one of the books that I published under the same title, *The Dawn of Crime*. And if you are so inclined, check them out uh, because they have so so many more details than I can talk about in a brief podcast. But um, each book of *The Dawn of Crime* has a different chapter dedicated to giving a biography of a different criminal, and not always a criminal. Often it's somebody that was um, came in contact with the law, but now in our context now we wouldn't think they're a criminal but certainly they had come in contact with the law and that's the nature of each biography and so in the dawn of crime in the first issue I talked about a young man named Eric Brennan now Eric Brennan was 17 years old in 1929 he was average height he was five foot five Um, but from the research I've done I found a little bit about him that I believe he came from a pretty broken home he's one of several kids um, and he bounced around, uh, you know, d- different foster homes. He was he appears in, and he until he ends up living with what I assume is a foster family in Coburg. Now, if you're not from Victoria, Coburg is a it was it was one of the first um, outer suburbs that was settled. And there used to be a line that uh, grandparents of mine used to say: if you want to invest in land, go to the end of the tram line and buy land. And that's kind of how Melbourne was set up. They'd send out a tram line and Coburg was one of them. And there was a tram line that's still there and it goes down Melville Road till it hits Bell Street. That's the kind of heartlands for this story, is in a place in West Coburg uh, where young Eric finds himself living with a foster family. Now, this is the era right on the head when Bonnie and Clyde are at their height in America. Squizzy Taylor had died only two years prior to this story. Um, and it's, it's a post, kind of, uh, there, there, there'd been huge economic crashes and then the world was lifting up. There had been a world war. Nobody knew that the stock exchange was about to crash again, but right about this point there was a relative amount of peace and uh, prosperity in Australia and the world. So 1929, just before the stock market crashed, we find Eric, as a young man, 17 years old, living with a foster family. Now, every day he would um he'd wake up and he'd go and tell them he was doing his own thing being in this context though eric was what i i'd, I'd have to say he's a survivor this is a kid who's learned a lot of tricks along the way in his own background he was one of 10 children and the eldest so he's come from a family uh, where survival was probably pretty tough um and he finds himself, like I said, in Coburg in 1929, with a foster family, and they've got relative comfort, but it's, it's very new to Eric. He's also come from a background of a pretty severe dysfunction. Um, and from newspaper reports, uh, you know, he seems to have a pretty good grasp on what's required that a young man that age needs to have a job, and there was probably a lot of pressure on him from the foster family to get a job, and in his one suit of clothes that he owns, he'd wake up every morning, and he would head out into the world, and he'd go and appear to be working in his job, right? So this kid heads off, and he'd come back with money. That's kind of, a, seems like a normal enough story. But the story kind of widens at about this point, because Eric isn't actually going to work. Now, it's, I, I guess a lot of you predicted that, but Eric had... Uh, he had an idea he wanted to be or didn't want to be necessarily but he was a thief he was breaking into people's houses during the day and he was taking their belongings so then he like a lot of crooks he, he realised that it would only be a matter of time before the police arrive at the scene somebody says oh somebody went through my window while I was at work during the day and they stole all my things well the police would go door knocking and they'd knock on people's doors and they say hey what did you see at about 11am now in this day and age, we're very uh, housebound. We find us sorry. We, we find ourselves in the house, really not leaving it. We've got technology, television, and so forth. In the nineteen twenties, prior to all that, people were um, were busier. I guess you'd say they're out of their house a lot more, gardening or pottering. You know, women didn't tend to work as often, and there were a lot more of them about, and the men that were older would stay home it was reasonably normal to retire in your late 50s so there were a lot more people out and about around the house than there are now so it was a lot the the strike rate was a lot higher for police to go door knocking on the houses around that area and say hey what did you see at 11am they would say well i was out the front gardening I was out the front actually talking to my neighbour. You know, I've got to say, I've lived next door to the same people now for a decade, and I wouldn't even know their, their first names. All I get is good morning and good night, an occasional wave, you know. Uh, <laughs> and that's this generation. But in 1929, it was very normal to know the names and business of you, your neighbours, and you'd know all about them and their children. And So the first port of call the police would make when a house is knocked over is to go knocking on the doors of the houses around it. Hello, where were you at 11am? What did you see? Eric's trick. He, he, I don't know if he designed this uh, as a like he just said that's what I'm going to do and started doing it, or he evolved it from earlier crimes. Typically speaking, when you find a criminal who's successful, they usually have a back catalogue of crimes they committed that either didn't go so well and they learnt from them, or they learnt from somebody older than them, apprenticeship style. Uh, so it's, it's hard to say if he was you know laying in bed one night and just came up with this idea and then started doing this, but he acquired a full set of women's clothes and in that bag he left the foster home with every day was a hat with a wig of long hair that he'd sewn into the back of it glasses a dress even a necklace and women's shoes now this kid was average height which is it's not an incredibly tall woman but it's a taller than average woman at five foot five he was skinny the photos of him, his mugshots, and this will be the I'll put his mug shot on the thumbnail for this episode, so that's the kid you're looking at so in fading light, like if you weren't really staring at this guy and analysing him, if he had the walk right, I guess it comes out of the walk, uh, if he had the walk correct, he could possibly pass as a woman, and that's exactly what he tried to do, so he would arrive at the, the scene he was going to commit his crime, at the, you know, the house he was going to break into, dressed as a woman and he'd walk up and down the street a couple of times and he'd walk into the ha- into the front yard i guess you know just as me summarizing he'd probably open a gate go down the back of the house look for an open window look for an open door and then he'd come out and walk off dressed as a woman so then when the police went next door to the houses around i said hello what'd you get up to at 11 a.m what, what did you see there was a crime did you see anything well, they'd say, yeah, sure, we saw you know, an average-looking woman with a hat. She walked down there, she walked in the house, she walked off. Said, All right, so we're looking for a woman. How tall was she? <laughs> and he had this incredible uh, smokescreen, I guess you'd say. So his, his spree took place between 1929 and 1939, nearly a decade. So it's a very long time that he's getting away with this. It, it was also thought of as absolutely unthinkable in the 1930s, that a man would dress as a woman. I mean, that that happened a lot in theatre. Like, there were absolutely comedians, Al Jolson and others, who... Would, that it was more grotesque, though. Like, they'd put a mop on their head and they'd try and be the ugliest woman they could. That was, that was part of the gag. But it was... Every time there's a case prior to about, you know, 1950 at least, even then, the 70s... Uh, in history when there's a man dressing to legitimately pass themselves off as a woman in this time they often do because people just they cannot fathom that a man would do that that's just beyond guessing that a man would dress as a woman there was a, a fine as well worth mentioning that he if a man dressed as a woman or vice versa and they went out in public you ran a serious risk of being caught by anybody from the public who points at you and says that's disgusting you've just committed the crime that was available back then uh, called offensive behaviour. And offensive behaviour was finable and jailable if it was bad enough. So we have indecent behaviour these days that can be pressed, but it's tough. Um, but just dressing as a woman would be sufficient to get you in court, at least. So, so Brennan begins this, this spree in 1929, and he keeps working you know, the area, breaking in through people's windows, and he until finally he comes undone, and it's a pretty—I don't know if it's a rookie mistake because he's been doing it for quite a while—but he gets caught. Um, he gets caught by trying to pawn off at a pawn shop some of the goods he stole. Um, it was a fur coat, a handbag, and a designer hat. And he took them. Uh, he was taking them to very various um, different pawnbrokers for different things, you know. And this one was a little bit more expensive than usual, uh, but they were traceable. So in the police report, somebody said, "Look, I've you know, I've lost uh, these items." The police then went to all the different pawnbrokers and said, "Have you got these items?" They, one of them said, "Yes. We know this kid. He comes in semi-regularly." So he'd been doing it for long enough that he became known. And I think that's one of the great undoings of a lot of criminals: is that they be, I don't know, if complacent, but they they do, they they get sloppy in their details and they allow things to catch up with them. Um so you know he he comes undone but he ends up go uh he he ends up um in front of the courts um he reoffended a number of times after his release but uh i i 've never found any evidence of whether or not he dressed as a woman in his later days when he kept doing the same thing um, he came undone in the, in the last part of his career um when now, I'm reading from notes, and I've just lost my place, which is stupid, but <laughs> thanks for bearing with me. Um, and I've written, Brendan Cameron was stuck for the first time in 1929 when a well-intended neighbour saw him performing his pre-robbery parade. He was walking up and down the street, and he's you know, dressed as a woman. The neighbour took notice of him strutting along the pavement because it just didn't quite look like a woman, in his opinion. Unfortunately for Brendan, the man who lived a few doors away from the house that he was about to hit, so I thought that the woman in the sun hat was also a little bit attractive. So I followed him. <laughs> and that's the testimony that he actually gave. He said, look, I saw this woman and she's walking up and down and didn't know if it was a woman or not, but I thought she was good looking, so I followed her. <laughs> so he followed her the short distance, admiring the way she walked, and suddenly she saw the woman climb through the neighbor's house. And he kept watching from a distance, and then he followed her another part of the distance until sure enough, Brennan got out of the woman's clothing. Into the man's clothing, so he's he got stung at the um at the pawnbroker's, and then he also got stung in the act. The police are called they put the whole thing together, and uh he went to jail. He was arrested the following morning at six a m when the police broke into into the foster house where he'd still been living, and he was arrested in the one suit of clothes he owned so I'm guessing he he wasn't making a huge amount of money from this and one suit of clothing or well, two when you consider the <laughs> woman's clothing. But uh, he went on, and he moved out, and he reoffended a little bit, but he seemed to straighten himself up by the the mid-30s. By 1939, um, he had a, bi- a bicycle shop, and he kind of worked his way up. And he opened a bicycle shop, but ultimately he went bankrupt there. Uh, and he moved to Benella, out in regional Victoria. Then he moved to Queensland in 1968 with his second wife, uh, where he lived out his days, and he passed away in 1987 at the age of 79 so that's one of the more interesting stories I've come across as a young boy who works out that he can get away with more if he dresses like a woman (laughs) but uh, that's the story of Alex Brennan and uh, that's in one of the dawn of crime books I believe the first book with a lot more detail and some more pictures Uh, if you are so inclined check out the dawn of crime anywhere on the internet where books are sold And uh, otherwise, head over to my author page, which is Roy Malloy, author, and it's M-A-L-O-Y. You've been listening to The Dawn of Crime, and I hope you enjoyed the episode, and uh, upload some more soon.